0: Sunday morning for the amazing fall like you've been giving us and our farmers and bringing in the harvest. We thank you for safety out there. we a blessing on the family that lost a loved one last week. And thank you, Jesus. In the not so much in the harvest, just kind of the regular everyday farm life. And so we lift up prayers for the wife and the kids. Thank you, Jesus. God, come now. We need your help, Holy Spirit. You authored this word. You uh, whispered it. Actually, Jesus directly to John, and John recorded it for us. God, we need help. Come, Holy Spirit, teach us. Open our hearts and minds, our ears to you. We don't want to just learn stuff in an amazing book. We want to get to know you, Jesus, better. So we can love you more fellowship with you more and share you with others. So thanks, God, for showing us the way today in Jesus' name. amen. Amen. We got to get out. my laser culture. So we just kind of dipped our toes in Revelation chapter 11 last week, and I won't say we got bogged down because that's not what happened. But we spent most of the time um, talking about this 360 days and 365 days year eight years in the Bible, and how especially in prophetic situations, well. Noah marked time of the flood in 360 day years.
1: And then here, Daniel,
0: when prophesying about the end times, uses 360 day years. And then Revelation uses it. So we just we dug about as as much as we could out of that topic, I think. We don't have silver bullet kind of thing with it, but it's really clear that. In the end times, those seven to seven years of God's design, um, God is using 360 day calendar years, calendar days in the year. Uh, does that mean sun, moon, and stars and things get switched up or something? Very possibly. Don't know for sure. But that's the way it's counted in Scripture, so we just need to be aware of that. Because um, more of that, at 1260, it becomes interesting because then Daniel mentions 1,290, and then he mentions 1,335 days. So uh, those are on your timeline. So on the timeline is seven years mapped out from Daniel's you know, 70 weeks stops right here when this arrow ends right here. And then we got the next 30 days, lots of stuff happens. And 45 days beyond that, and then the millennium begins. So we're right here in Chapter 11. Um, the six trumpets have been blown. We're waiting for the seventh to be blown. As we're waiting for the seventh to be blown, this little small scroll is given to a mighty angel in Chapter 10 that we think is very probably Jesus. And um, we're kind of down here now today. Uh, these are the the hills, the mountains, Edom, it's leading up to Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And we got the two witnesses. I want to show you here on your illustration. Back here is the midpoint, right? Everybody say, yay, midpoint. Yay, midpoint. Okay, back here is your midpoint. That's where the Antichrist goes into the temple and reveals his identity, says, I'm actually God. Stop the sacrifices. Worship me. Take my mark or die. Right below that, on your illustration, you can see better, hopefully. Uh, I've got one, Paul, if you want to see one up close. Because that screen is just way too fuzzy. So you can have fun with that. (laughs) Okay. So on your illustration, these two gentlemen right here, those are the two witnesses. And they appear at the midpoint to begin their ministry. And if you follow across the timeline, um, right here is where they they die, and over here where they're resurrected. We're going to talk about that today. Let's see that today. Okay, so that gives an idea of where we're at the timeline, anyway. Um, can we go to my illustration for chapter 11? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so far all we've done with the two witnesses here is this box right here, what we focused on last Sunday, where John mentions 42 months for the two witnesses, then he mentions 1260 days, later on the is going to mention three and a half years, all those things are equal. So just to kind of keep that in mind, this is really cool, this confetti here. <laughs> I didn't put that on here. It's just accidental fluff that ever happened to you. No, okay, Callan says no. Accidental fluff never happens to John. <laughs> so let's go to Revelation chapter eleven. We'll start with verse one to kind of get back on the flow here. So John writes, "I was given a reed like a measuring rod, like a yardstick in a sense." was told, go and measure the temple of God at the altar. Count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. That's where the Gentiles are Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. Well, for how long? They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. That's that three and a half year time period. I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days. That's also three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth so if the two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth what is that sackcloth what clue does that give us about their ministry morning. repent morning good morning grieving uh, can be a sign of repentance all those things so they're wearing sackcloth and how long do these two witnesses get to testify powerfully okay. three and a half years which three and a half years? Of course, everything in Revelation is up for debate, amen? So we have a seven year time period that Daniel tells us about. And the Bible's given us all kinds of detail in and around that. Um, and we have the midpoint is huge in importance in that seven years. So the midpoint obviously breaks it up into halves. We have three and a half years in the front half, three and a half years in the back half. When when do these two witnesses do their prophesying ministry? That's the question. Um, I think it's pretty clear. We'll see what you think. Verse four. Anything else or verse three? Yes. Um, uh, where it says talks about uh, the Gentiles because they will be trampling on the holy Spirit, you know, outside when they've been outside the temple. Is that? yes yes basically saying instead of treating that temple area like a place of worship where the Gentiles are welcome to come worship the true God they're gonna trample on it they're gonna do everything they can to destroy it and so it's, it's an indication of what the Antichrist is gonna to attempt to do with that last three and a half years he shuts down worship Tears down the temple, Uh, not tears down the temple, but tears down the worship practices there. All that stuff, so the trampling, I think it's pretty clear. The trampling begins at the midpoint. That's when the Gentiles, the the non-Israelites, begin to trample the temple. Yeah, good question. Anything else before we go into new stuff in verse 3? Okay, verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. He's talking about the the two witnesses and he says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That's a little different, right? We don't often. Well, I guess sometimes we describe people in terms of trees. Um, My last name is pronounced Oker. Aaron is tall and he's bigger and stronger than I ever was. So... In different sporting aspects, like at Bible College where they played softball, he regularly crushed home runs. And he was a stalwart first baseman. So his nickname was Oak. Oak tree, literally you could say Oak trees up to back, you know what I mean? So I mean, kind of but so we do compare people to trees and stuff now and then. So what's up with olive trees? What what do olive trees normally mean in the, the life of an Israelite? We don't do much of them around here, so it's probably hard to stretch. But they use, go ahead. Yes, peace. Good. What else? In their daily life, in their, their diet, how do they use olive? Oil. They use olive oil like crazy in their cooking, in their recipes. They use olive oil for their... They call it their candle oil, their lampstand oil is is olive oil. So that has has a worship aspect. So olive oil in the Bible is a symbol, a representation of the Holy Spirit. Because the the lampstand in the temple, in the tabernacle, it has how many buds? How many flames? Seven. Because that just says the Holy Spirit is completely full and perfect. Like Seventh-day creation is full and perfect. So the lampstand that represents the Holy Spirit has seven flames on it. And all those flames are fed from a central pot that is full of um, extra virgin, perfect, clean olive oil. So olive oil has always been a representation of the Holy Spirit, just like you know, the dove is from the baptism of Jesus. There are different things. Wind, of course, but olive oil represents the Holy Spirit oftentimes. So he says, verse 4, these are the two olive trees. So, boy, a whole bunch of things come together with that. And the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The lampstands we've seen before in Revelation. Remember, way back in chapter, was it one or chapter one? Yeah. Chapter one. What did the lampstands represent back there? Seven golden lampstands that the Son of Man who was standing in the midst of. They represent the churches. The seven letters are sent to, so the lampstands back there represent congregations. Interesting. That's now we're talking about. Here is it? We're talking about two men. So let's go back to Zechariah. Could the olive oil be the anointing too? That's what first came to my head. Was the anointing yes. oil that can can refer to God's anointing on them, their ministry, their preaching an anointing of protection as well that we're going to see. go back to the Testament of Zechariah. You can find Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. A bunch of smaller prophets there. Haggai, Zechariah is kind of in between a bunch of minor prophets. Uh, Zechariah chapter 4. You think Revelation has odd visions and stuff, and Zechariah is he going of Same ballpark, and maybe even more so. So Zechariah, and Zechariah, when he was prophesying, Israel had just come back from Babylon in 70 years of captivity. Okay, So they're rebuilding Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the temple, and you have two leaders, primarily in Israel at the time. Their high priest's name was Joshua, isn't that correct? and their um, teaching scribe governor guy was Zerubbabel. So you see in Zechariah lots of prophecies from God to these two leaders to encourage them, direct them, tell them what to do next. So they're gonna be the two two olive trees here. Let's just pick it up. Zechariah chapter four, verse one. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. The angel asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold, what? lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also there are two olive trees. That's familiar, right? Also there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So as you're reading the context, as you're reading through Zechariah, you know that already there's been a number of discussions of these two leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel. You don't automatically know that's who we're talking about right here, but it becomes clear as we go along. So verse 3 says, Also there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, the other on the left. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? how far you are supposed to 4. Uh, He answered, do you now not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might. Say with me this verse. I think in every version it's pretty same. Not by might, nor Nor by by power, but by by my Spirit, spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. They've got their hands full in a lot, a lot of ways. And... God is reminding Zerubbabel, he says, it's it's not in your own strength. If you're feeling weak and incapable today, that's okay. Because it's not by your might, it's not by your power that I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to accomplish it by my spirit, in you and through you. And that's a a wonderful verse, isn't it? Um, That's a refrigerator kind of verse. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 7. What are you, O mighty mountain? Now, here the mighty mountain is is an obstacle. And the obstacle is finishing the temple, probably. What are you, almighty mountain, this obstacle? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. That's God promising Zerubbabel. This this mountainous obstacle before you that you can't see any way of accomplishing, God says, I'm going to level it for you. I'm going to take care of it for you. What are you, almighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone, you know, the finishing last stone to wrap it up. And the, there's going to be a huge crowd gathered around for that moment, right? It's like a dedication of a brand new building. It says, then he will bring out the capstone, the shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Now, from, from first stone to last stone took uh, oh no, 25, 35 years, I should know that, long time. They stopped building it. There was a lot of opposition from the people around them, from the Samaritans around them, and um, threats of um, attacking them and so forth. They got discouraged and quit. They didn't work on it for like 10 years. There was a stretch in there where it just, just laid there and gathered dust. So God says, here's a word for you. The man that laid the first stone, He's still going to be alive, and he's going to finish it. He's going to put the capstone on it. So in his lifetime, God says, I'm going to finish this temple. Verse 10, who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. That's a little thing, right? God says that little thing is going to lead to finishing the temple. So when when Zerubbabel gets the, the workers to come back, and they come back and they, they clean off all of the bricks, the stones that have been laid. They'll dust them off, clean them off, because you want to lay new stone to stone, right? He's going to bring out the plumb line to make sure it's level and straight and true. And God says that action, it might be a little thing in the stuff of life, but it's a really big thing in the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, so who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in Hannah's of These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the earth. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Okay, so before we said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the lampstand's probably referring to who? The Holy Spirit. Who's on either side? Zerubbabel's on one side, Joshua's on the other. He says, by my spirit, this is going to be accomplished. Verse 11, I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out gold and oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, he said. Isn't Zechariah like, you? help me. I don't know what you're talking about. Verse 14, so the angel said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. And that's Zerubbabel and Joshua. So, lots, so when John sees this and tells us in Revelation chapter 11, describes these two witnesses as two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What does a, a biblically knowledgeable, Old Testament aware follower of God immediately to connect to? Zechariah chapter 4, two men who are going to lead the way and finish in the temple. And uh, not by their might nor by their power, but by the Holy Spirit's power working in and through them. It doesn't tell us who the two olive tree men are in Revelation, but it gives us a a better understanding of what he's talking about here. Um, The two lamb stands before the Lord of the earth. I don't know a lot what to tell you about that. What ideas do you have? The two olive trees are obviously the two witnesses we're talking about. The lampstands stands that represent congregations, back in Zechariah represent the Holy Spirit. We've got lots of possibilities. I don't know any more detail to tell you what it's referring to. It may mean that each one of them is completely empowered by the Holy Spirit. If it's like Zachariah, where the lampstand represented the Holy Spirit, if there are two witnesses and two lampstands, maybe in a sense it's like behind each of these men is going to be the Holy Spirit empowering what they're preaching, what they do. That's my best guess. Um, that if something comes up, throw in a hopper next Sunday. That'd be fine. Okay, let's move on. Anything else in verse four? Okay, let's do verse five. If anyone tries to harm them, these two witnesses, fire comes from their where mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. My child, he'd never say shazam. <laughs> That's pretty wild stuff, right? So, are we to take this literally, or is this symbolic in some some way? Normally, we take things how in scripture. If we take them literally unless God tells us different. Or it becomes really obvious in the text. Um, I don't know what else to do with this than to basically take it literally. Now they're going to be—we're going to see what unfolds through their ministry. Why? Why do people try to destroy them? Because they—they're telling people straight up: you've got to repent, and get right with God, or you're going to be destroyed. Who wants to hear that every day for three and a half years? That gets so old. So things like Jeremiah, God calls Jeremiah and says, got a job for you. You're going to prophesy to the people of Israel, and you're going to prophesy for many, many, many years, and they're never going to want to listen to you. And you're like, seriously? Thank you. What, what a job. Nobody gets in line for that job. That's why God has to call somebody to do it. Because nobody's volunteering. Um, these men didn't volunteer. God just sends them. But here's the deal. Verse 5, anyone tries to harm them, and they will. The antichrist will try and destroy them. Fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. So it's not just anointing in what they preach, but an anointing of supernatural protection. They are literally untouchable. Until God decides it's time for something different. For three and a half years they prophesied there untouched. It reminds us of John himself who wrote Revelation. We don't know this from the Bible but historic tradition all the way back to John's time says he was on the island of Patmos um, sent there in exile because Caesar tried to kill him two or three different ways and he kept miraculously surviving. They threw him in the bath of burning oil and he just swam around in there and and they finally took him out so then they tried to burn him at the stake and all the wood burned and the stake burned but god just stood there untouched and so then they brought in the lions and the lions just walked around and purred and <laughs> let him pet him and eat him so caesar got tired of trying to kill him and exiled him to Patmos. and i don't know that that's literally god's honest truth but i believe it I think it's real. So it's gonna be similar lines for these two witnesses. Anybody tries to mess with them, and they're gonna die. Does fire literally come out of their mouths? I don't know what else to make of that. Yeah, you can say, well, it's probably referring to words come out of their mouths and the words kill them. That could be. Could be that they just say, In the name of God Almighty, the one true God, you're dead. Yeah, that could be the case. Um, but I'm not, you know, could literally be fire. Sure, very good. Elijah called literally, yeah, very good. Elijah called down, but the fire didn't come from his mouth, but he called on fire from heaven, and, and it did. God sent it, and bam. So, um, very real and possible. So, should we hear more about these men with we'll the rest you? This is amazing stuff, right? These are, obviously, this is one of my favorite parts in the whole Revelation because it just boggles the mind to think of what it will look like and what God's accomplishing with it. So, verse 6. And, and of course, okay, again, there are lots of different perspectives in Revelation. We're going with the literal God says what he's going to do, and he does it, even if it seems outlandish to us. But all the other interpretations of Revelation, to some degree or another, use, you know, this is a symbol for this, this is an allegory for that. And they get off, in my mind, they get off in the weeds, in the ditches, pretty quickly. So a lot of interpreters come to this, and they don't want to believe it's two literal men for three and a half years do this, and fire comes around. So so they come up with all kinds of interesting interpretations. The two men represent uh, the Christian church and this and that, they get confused. Anybody can say anything they want to, and you can't prove it either way. So it's just, it's speculation. And um, you can read all kinds of books on other people's speculations if you want to. Boy, I'm not spend time on it myself. But we'll see what God's word directly says and trust it. So verse 6, these men, and I'm like, if it was the church and some other fe- uh Supernatural, symbolical thing, wouldn't God tell us? Why does he say they're two men? It's very simple and clear for us to understand. God wants a kindergartner who's, who can read to be able to read and basically go, God's talking about two men here. He doesn't want to make it super hard for us to understand. God wants to make it clear. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesied. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. So I haven't really broached the question yet, but the big question, right, is who are these two guys? So is God giving us some indication of who these guys are? Who comes to mind? Who in the past, um, a follower of God, exerted the power to shut the skies so it would not rain? In time he is prophesying. Who did that? Elijah. Elijah, already mentioned here this morning. Elijah did that. Well, let's go to James chapter five. It's not very far to the left. In fact, it's, if you go back, it's Revelation, Jude, first, second, third John. right in front of Peter. James chapter 5, verse 17. Drink while you're getting. James chapter 5, verse 17. Here James writes, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain in the land for how long? Now, is that just funny or what? Come on, go go ahead and laugh a little bit. Three and a half years. Why? Why? I'm going, why not? Why not make us think of revelation of that God's design for the end? And um, yeah, so here's another thing. I love this whole question of who the two witnesses are. Okay, who's, so, His revelation is God telling us that one of those witnesses is Elijah. Who would the other one be? They have the power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Who does that bring to mind? (laughs) Moses. Now, think Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus grabs Peter, James, and John, goes up on the Mount. And who comes down to visit with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. So who could our two witnesses very possibly be? Moses and Elijah. Well, Here's where I have a little problem. I don't lose sleep over it regularly, but I I wrestle with it. Elijah, to me, makes total sense, because Elijah never died. What happened at the end of Elijah's time on the physical earth? Okay. chariots of fire and took him up in a whirlwind to heaven. He didn't die. So here's, here's my issue. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Okay, Bible is also super clear. No one has ever lived a life without sin other than Jesus Christ himself. So to me, in my mind, I'm going, the scripture cannot be broken. Every single human being should, under normal circumstances, before the rapture, should physically die. God took Elijah up. Was Elijah without sin? Had he never ever sinned? Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Elsewhere it says everybody has fallen short of sin. He was born with sin, passed on from his previous father. So in my mind, Elijah needs to die. <laughs> but did Moses die? He did. he did. You don't know where God buried him, but he went up on a mountain, and, and probably Joshua writes that last chapter of Deuteronomy for us, and Joshua says, he went up on this mountain, and he died, and God buried him in such and such a valley, but nobody's ever been able to, to find where God buried him. Obviously, God's keeping that secret. Also, elsewhere in Scripture, mentions that the devil tried to get a hold of Moses' body. Not exactly for sure what purposes. Maybe to present it and have people make his body into an idol, worship it and stuff. Would would people do something like that? (laughs) No. So, so God sent Michael, the archangel, to go toe to toe with Satan and say, "No, you can't have Moses." Moses died, doesn't mean God can't send him back to do that, so I'm not saying that. But he died. Is there anybody else in the Bible who never physically died on the planet? Enoch. 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 Way back in Genesis. Doesn't say much. Let's see, let's go back to it. Uh, so Enoch, Genesis chapter 5. I have clock here. Genesis chapter 5. Verse 18, Genesis five eighteen. when Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. I mean, these are just names that jump out, right? Why is Methuselah famous? The longest man to ever live on the earth. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more, because God, what? Took him away. Really clear, Enoch did not die. God took him away. Um. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, it says the same thing. He never never died, God took him out. Enoch lives 365 some years. Did he never sin in 365 years? That that can't be the case. So so in my mind, I'm going, it seems like Revelation is is making a really good case for these two witnesses being Moses and Elijah. I'm okay with that. Elijah makes perfect sense to me. Because in a sense, he needs to die again. He never did. But the only other one who never died was Enoch. It seems to refer to Moses, but then then Enoch never dies? I'm like, to me, that doesn't line up with Romans. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't click. Uh, I'm okay with however God does it, because it'll click, and we'll understand it. But I kind of lean towards Enoch and Elijah. But I, I, I have to, but there's plenty of evidence that it could be Moses. I've heard in some commentary that in the Bible when you start walking with God that means that they're not sinning. That they're what? That they're not sinning. That's what that key was, walking with God. Because if you're sinning, then are you really walking with God or you kind of following out? Or is that broken? Yeah, boy. And that's a whole other argument, but like I want to say that I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. So saying that um, the phrase walking with God means that they were were not sinning. They were walking in perfect fellowship with God, is what I'm hearing. David. Um, yeah, I guess I can't categorically refute that, but I, on the other hand, I don't have any clear indication of the rest of Scripture. That's the case. And so we know from scripture every person who is born has sin, has received sin in the previous generation. And all of sin have fallen short of the glory of God. Interesting, I just don't know how, yeah. studying walking with God. I know it's it's only mentioned of two or three people. One of them is Noah. One of them is Enoch. And who's the other one? Abraham. Could be. We know Abraham. That's his life. We have enough detail to know that Abraham lived it down there. Interesting. Okay, so I just throw it out there and tell you why on, so on the illustration well, let's not go to it yet. Ooh, we gotta quit let's go to the illustration real fast okay, I'll let you know why at the bottom it does what it does so uh, we'll get we'll get more and there's more description on who these two men are so but we've already got this that uh, so here's the fire from their mouths and that's arg killing anybody who tries to harm them both of them fire coming from their mouths one that said he shut up the rain that's uh reference to elijah most likely the other one is what i trying to describe moses oh the plagues and the water into blood i got the ten commandments in his hands Uh, we'll find out so i put underneath moses question mark elijah almost assuredly uh enoch question mark these two is where i have a question so i've got um Here's we'll find out where they die. So I got that's a headstone. M is for Moses, E is for Enoch This E is for Elijah. So I'm not sure which, yeah, right. So then skull and crossbones, they die, they lay dead for three and a half days. Then God resurrects them. So they're smi- they're upright again, they're smiley happy. And then God says, Come up here, He takes them up into heaven right before everybody's eyes. So all the way across i've got m e and e m e and e so i'm like there's a question um, we'll know obviously later and we'll rejoice at their ministry but i you to talk about it. who are these two guys yes chocolate bar, I mean, that? that's not a chocolate bar is it? <laughs> that's the altar chocolate are seriously If <laughs> you can see my illustration up close, you can see clearly. There's fire on the altar. You can't really see it in illustration. <laughs> I guess you could set a chocolate bar on fire, but right, thank you for that. <laughs> Let's pray. God, you're good. Uh, we look forward to meeting the two witnesses, to watching them do ministry, for, to ministry, to watch them hear them proclaim the word for three and a half years. God, proclaim your word into our hearts and every day. Every day. We want to walk with you in deeper and deeper fellowship. Not like Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Adam and Eve got to walk with you in the garden. We want to walk with you in deeper fellowship. So come, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.